Welcome to Mental Health Explored, a podcast created by TogetherWell.org. We are a nonprofit dedicated to eliminating systemic barriers to mental health education, resources, and tools. We bring you the voice of vetted and credentialed mental health professionals. I am Michelle Thompson. And I'm Beth Rice. We're Together Well volunteers and the co-hosts of Mental Health Explored. We're not mental health professionals, but we do have access to lots of great people who are. We've got questions just like you. Join us as we explore a wide range of mental health topics with experts in the field. In part two of our episode about online gaming, Together Well member and therapist Mark Edwards identified some benefits to gaming, why some people are drawn to certain types of games, and how he approaches therapy. Mark explains how we choose to engage in activities based on a, quote, response cost. We're more likely to participate in a given activity, for example, spending a lot of time online, if the perceived cost seems acceptable. It becomes an issue when people engage in certain things at the expense of carrying out other tasks that are essential to healthy functioning in the real world. It's worth introducing a concept. This comes from kind of the early days of psychology and psychotherapy. This is a behavioral concept, and it's referred to as response cost. And the idea of response cost is, in an ideal world, as we wander about in the world, our behavior is constantly being shaped by essentially the value of the things that we do. So an example would be if you went to visit your doctor and your doctor was in a a multi-story building and you went to your doctor's office and your doctor was on the third floor, all things being equal, about half the people would take the elevator up to the doctor's office and the other half because they were more maybe bound to the idea of, oh, this is a little bit of a workout, I'll get my heart pumping, they would take the stairs. So generally, unless you're elderly, unless you have difficulty moving, most people would split 50-50. If you take your doctor from the third floor and you put them up onto the seventh floor or the 10th floor, if you increase the cost of the behavior, it's less likely that people will engage in it. So more people would take the easy way of taking the elevator or the escalator. That's a fairly simple one. But when we think about the complexity of interpersonal experiences, negotiating friendships, negotiating relationships, real relationships, relationships in the real world are multifaceted and very complicated. Mm -hmm. For those people who struggle with those multifaceted, complicated real-life interactions, the gaming world in a lot of ways is a lot more attractive. It's easier. We are drawn together with a single purpose, and that single purpose will be defeating the other team or achieving this objective. And so you can see for a certain portion of the population for whom interpersonal experiences in real life are quite complex, on-life experiences are much more attractive. Mm -hmm. So for me, in thinking about the kind of healthiness of being connected online and the lack of health in being connected online, that's always the dividing line. You know, how much of your life is being spent here in this almost pseudo relationship, or those those relationships are very real and very, very important. And how much of it's being spent in real life doing your average everyday things like going to work and going to school. 
Our daily routines can become so consistent that we may begin to crave a distraction from the norm. Mark explores how the role of order and chaos may influence ways in which we find enjoyment or even comfort in gaming. The games we choose or enjoy are often meeting an underlying need of the psyche. When you look at everything that we've been discussing at from that perspective, Mm -hmm. do you think there are personality and developmental struggles that are below the surface that are pulling us to want to play that game? Absolutely. Or keeping us playing that game? Absolutely. This is a theory that I've developed over the years of working with lots of people who play games. Really, it comes from reading that I was doing in the 1970s. There was a book that was quite influential. It was published by a psychologist we have. The necessity for narratives in fairy stories, that versions of that same character, that same struggle, that fairy story exist in multiple different cultures all over the world. And we call for those stories. And that fairy stories particularly are ways for very young children to deal with things like abandonment and loss and connection and love. And as a result, they're very important. So this put me in my thinking on the track of what is it that draws us to particular narratives? Why do we watch particular TV shows or particular films? And then because of my interest in technology and particularly in gaming, why is it that we're drawn to particular games or particular genres of games? For me, this falls into two areas. The first is that we, to a greater or lesser extent, all utilize things like routines or obsessive kind of processes in our lives. They keep us on track. They stop us in some ways from thinking about every single detail. Think about the way that you take a shower or clean your teeth. It just becomes a habit. Or think about the way that you drive to work, for example. Generally, unless we decide otherwise, we take the same route. We leave at just about the same time. Very obsessive kind of stuff. And what we're doing is we're taking the chaos of everyday life and we're bringing order by utilizing all of these obsessive mechanisms. The obverse is also true that some of us feel, particularly during adolescence, as though our lives are very kind of run with guardrails, that we go to school, we do homework, we go to bed, we wake up the next day, rinse and repeat. And so life feels a little bit plain, a little bit valueless, a little bit over-controlled. So it strikes me in thinking about gaming choice that very often when people have complex lives, when they have lives that feel chaotic, out of control, very busy, the games that they tend to be drawn to tend to be much simpler. They tend to be games that involve kind of obsessive mechanisms of collecting, of ordering, of making things the same. They may be word games or number games, and they're fairly simple, and they're played for a very short period of time very often. Where lots of adolescents, particularly adolescent boys and young men, find themselves is their lives feel very over-controlled. And so what they're looking for is this much more visceral kind of reaction. I want to be involved in a game that will consume me, that will pick me up and carry me along that I'll feel threatened or endangered in playing the game. And so those players tend to gravitate much more to bigger, broader, immersive kinds of games, first-person shooters, and now, frankly, virtual reality games that really suck the player in. And though you may be sitting in your suburban bedroom, 
in the game, you're fighting dragons or you're involved in a pincer movement in the song. And so it's a much more visible, visceral, kind of immersive experience. The first type of gamer is looking for order from chaos. The second type of gamer is looking for chaos from the order of their life. So for me, just thinking about the choice that a player makes about the kinds of games that they're interested in, in some ways defines the personality that they inhabit and also defines their developmental stage and the struggles of that time. Gaming patterns change over time. When and why does a player choose to play certain games over others? Mark digs into these questions and more. To get to the deeper question, what does your psyche seek? So Mark, when you see people in your practice, mm-hmm. once someone realizes or their loved one realizes that, hey, maybe we need to go talk to a professional about these gaming habits that are going on, do you start the conversation of like what type of games you play and then you can kind of figure out the issues? Yeah. Yeah. What What do you play? Mm-hmm. How long do you play it? How long have you played it? What do you enjoy about it? Now, some kids are just going to say, oh, it's fun. But digging down deeper into what that fun is can be very useful clinically. And it's also important to say, and this is one of those things that I want to kind of draw a distinction between obsessive and impulsive mechanisms in gaming and what we've talked about earlier on, this idea of addiction. What we know about addiction is absent of treatment, addictive process tends to be a very long-term thing unless that person has some physical concerns, unless they become very, very sick, or there is some really negative outcome to use of a substance, some addictive substance, their use tends to continue until there's treatment to stop. And generally that treatment is cessation. It's not drinking, not using. Mm -hmm. With gaming, what we tend to see is there's a similar kind of process for a lot of people. I get drawn into this thing. I think about it all the time. I try to stop using this game and can't. But what we also notice is that people's use of games tends to be quite transient. Interesting. There are some kids, for example, who are playing things like Roblox or they're playing Minecraft and they do it for a certain period of their life. They love the kind of creative aspect, the world building aspect. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, it no longer answers the question that their psyche is asking and they move on to something else. And that's similarly right the way through the kind of gaming spectrum that people will play a game until, for whatever reason, it no longer satisfies the need that they have, the question that they're asking, Mm -hmm. and then they'll move on to something else. So it's another way that kind of longitudinal stability is another way in which gaming really doesn't fit into that same kind of addictive paradigm. Mm -hmm. Do you see situations where, like, I I have children, I watch them evolve, they played certain games at different periods in their lives, Mm -hmm. and Do you see a transition, like maybe Minecraft was when they were teenagers, young teenagers, you know, Mm -hmm. and then they moved into another type of game. And does that gaming behavior continue or does it sometimes just completely fade? I have to imagine it's all of the above, but I guess what, Mm -hmm. why are some individuals able to live without games in their life Mm -hmm. and some aren't? What happens there? Well, in in answer to the first part of the question, I think 
yes, people's gaming preferences do change over time. And again, from my perspective, I think what's going on is that central question, whatever that question may be, is no longer being answered by this particular game. It's also true that some kids will play or some adults will play a game for a period of time, stop for six months, a year, 18 months, and then find themselves going back and trying it out again and enjoying it. But again, it doesn't quite fit what they're looking for at that time. So they'll abandon it, and move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Our choices in life most often have to do with our needs. Mark explains how his approach to therapy takes a look at the underlying needs that are being served by gaming. When we look through that lens, we begin to better understand the attraction. I don't know much about psychotherapy, but is that Mm -hmm. one of the things about psychotherapy is that you're talking through all these issues? It is in the way that I practice. You know, there are lots of different ways to do mental health work and psychotherapy particularly some of which involve being very, very diagnostic and very clinical and very manualized in your approach. Do these things and you will be better. My view of the kind of work that I do is much more around the idea of understanding the purpose for a particular symptom. Mm -hmm. So if a person is using substances, if a person is anxious, if a person is not sleeping at night, my first perspective is what function does this serve? How are you being served by this particular thing, rather than saying something is intrinsically good or intrinsically bad. Mm -hmm. For me, it's a much more useful position to say, well, that's kind of an interesting thing. What's that for? How are you served or not served by that particular piece of behavior or that particular thing? More recently, I've been doing a lot of research around people's use of pornography. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I start off those presentations. I, I did one for a group of therapist just a couple of weeks ago. And the first thing that I said during that presentation was, you know, I'm really not going to take a moral position on pornography. It's not important that I do that. Mm -hmm. It's much more important that we're able to talk about the positive aspects of pornography and the negative aspects equally well, Mm -hmm. because it's not simply one thing or the other. I love your approach. It's so compassionate and it creates an environment for people to to feel authentic if they were considering that maybe they were feeling a little bit like they needed to make some changes. I just, I keep feeling that energy. So this is lovely. If you start to see negative consequences in your life, what do you do? How do you go about taking the next step? If you feel like something just might not be going in the right direction for you because the amount of time you're gaming, what do you do? I think the first thing is to really assess how often you're using, you know, how often you're involved in this particular game and frankly, how much you're enjoying it or not enjoying it. And I will say many of the younger kids that I find myself working with will be drawn to playing video games because it's what their peers are playing or because it's the next thing that they're interested in. But they haven't yet developed the self-control, the kind of executive functioning skills to be able to play the game effectively. They become very frustrated. They throw the controller around, they storm away, and then they come back again the following day and try the same thing. So in essence, the game is requiring something of them that they haven't yet developed. So the first investigations are, what am I getting out of this and what are my concerns about the things that I'm not getting out of this. Second, am I enjoying this game? 
Is this something that I feel drawn to do because I enjoy the experience of it or because I can't stop thinking about it or because I can't imagine myself doing it, doing anything else? If the real world is more threatening, if boredom is more threatening, and that's why I'm compelled to play this game, that's a problem. And that raises questions about what real life is about. But if those things are true, it's the first step, step is to try cutting back on use seeing what your reactions are, and very often replacing the time that you would spend gaming with other activities. It might be reading, it might be walking, it might be sporting activities, and seeing how the balance goes. If that person then finds that they are obsessively thinking about that game, if they find that they're worrying or perseverating around that game, then it may be time for some professional help. And that doesn't necessarily need to be a long-term relationship with a psychotherapist. It may be groups that are organized around video game playing or more obsessive behaviors. It may be some aspects of the self-help. There are all kinds of workbooks that are out there that can help with mood regulation and those kinds of things. Or it may in fact mean sitting down with someone just like me in an office to talk about the experience of playing games not playing games, and the difference between those two states. When you work with Together Well and offer workshops, how does that work? Like, when let's say somebody wants to book a workshop with you because <laughs> they want to talk about online gaming behavior. How do you go about that workshop? How does it work? I have a number of presentations that are things that I've created and a number of various different topics that are listed on Together Well. And I constantly am updating that information and constantly kind of reformulating those presentations. If there is an individual or a group who are interested in having me come to speak or to lead a workshop with a topic that seems adjacent to the, some of the things that I'm already talking about, I'm certainly very, very happy to develop something much more specifically around a topic. So the the things that I have listed there are Things like raising boys to be heroes in an age of villains, talking about social media, talking about pornography, thinking about gaming, enjoying the experience of kind of adolescent and early teens and 20s development, and counterpointing that with the struggles, the kind of psychological struggles of anxiety and depression that often kind of beleaguer people during that time period. People can be attracted to gaming for many reasons. There are a number of ways we can choose to spend our time. How we choose is based on how we feel about the activity. There was a book that came out in, it was probably about 2004, 2005, called Everything Bad is Good for You. And Everything Bad is Good for You looked at various aspects of popular culture and suggested that rather than these being kind of drains on who we are and diversions from our lives, they're actually indications of how far we've moved and how sophisticated our thinking has become. Mm -hmm. So he outlines some aspects of popular culture like sitcom scripts. If you look at sitcoms from the 1950s, they're very, very simple. If you look at sitcoms from the 1990s, they're actually very, very complex. There are multiple themes, multiple characters. And so we have evolved in terms of our understanding and our sophistication with narratives. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure whether this is in the book or whether this is something that I saw him talk about 
in a, a public event. But he gave this wonderful thought experiment. And the experiment was, if you had a choice of two different things for your child to be engaged in, which one would you choose? The first, your child is engaged with lots of other people of the same age, all attempting to do the same thing. There's lots of communication. There's a shared goal. And the goal is broken down into lots of small sub-goals where you work together and then move to the eventual end goal. So it involves a lot of delayed gratification and working to this single purpose. That's the first option. The second option is that same child could go to their room and they're going to be engaged in a thing that if you haven't done exactly the same thing, you can't really talk to them about it. The behavior is entirely controlled by another person. It is a very linear thing. There's only one way to do it. And again, it's quite isolating because there's no interaction with other people. Which one of those two activities would you choose? Now, most people would choose the first. The first game is playing World of Warcraft. The second activity is reading Charles Dickens. And the point that he was making is if we invented reading right now, we would all be trying to ban it right. because it is a very solitary activity. It's very defined by the author. There's only one way that this narrative goes. And unless someone else has read that same book, they really have no idea what you're doing, what you're seeing and how you understand it. So again, you know, thinking about complexity and thinking about the things that we find ourselves involved in, mm-hmm. we're presented with lots and lots of different opportunities And very often our opportunities are dictated by the way that we feel about them rather than the activity itself. This is fantastic. I have to say, I really am amazed by where this conversation went. Mm. And again, I love the perspective, the empathy, compassion that you show. And I think for those people out there that may have not had an experience with therapy or a therapist, this is a great example of what that dialogue could look like where you're doing some exploring. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to be in therapy. Well, actually, I am a proponent of everybody being in therapy. I love it. I think it's fantastic. But for those people that, that might feel like it's scary or it's inaccessible or I'm not right for it, this is an example. This calm conversation, this explorative conversation is an example to me of how it can feel to just Look at what's out there. What are you experiencing? What are you feeling? What's underneath the surface that might not be showing its face yet? You know, what can we do to better understand the behaviors that we are experiencing or desiring? You know, I think that's that's really leading us towards the accessible opportunities that could come from working with someone like yourself, booking a workshop, working with Together Well to identify the support that could be something to bring to an organization, to an individual, to a small group, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Yeah. But I think this has been an amazing exploration. I blew my mind here. I'm just so pleased. Oh, so. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to share as we wrap up, Mark, about gaming and online life? I think if there's anything that I'd like to share, it's it, it's essentially the kind of normality of the place that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a very, very easy thing to be damning of the space that young people find themselves in. 
I think it's a much more healthy perspective to take. And it's one that I really try to take all the time with raising that question of what is the purpose of this activity? What is it that I get out of this activity? Mm -hmm. What do I enjoy? How does this activity get in the way? And, you know, going back to very, very early kind of psychoanalytic thinking, Freud's thinking was something is problematic if it gets in the way of either love or work. Mm -hmm. And if your gaming behavior or your television watching or your exercise or whatever that behavior is, mm-hmm. if it gets in, in, in the way of your ability to be in a relationship, in love, or your ability to do your task, to do work, then it's a problem and it's time to seek help. Yeah. But before that, everything is valid. That's an excellent point. What a great way to end the conversation. I think it's it's really important for not only us as individuals to look at it like that, but of loved ones and friends yeah. to look at it from that lens and and just be supportive because nobody's trying to make mistakes and lose relationships. They're all doing their very best every day. You know, we all are. Mm-hmm. So having a little bit of compassion. Yeah. So Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and all your knowledge and expertise. Yeah, it's been great. And we'll have to have you on on again and maybe talk about social media and other things. Love that. Thank you very much for the invite. All right. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, you're so welcome. Developments in technology will continue to shape our virtual experiences as we live more and more of our lives online. But as online gaming becomes increasingly enticing, it's up to each individual to practice self-awareness and to develop what Mark calls the psychological muscle to build controls around certain impulsive behaviors. We need to develop strategies for healthy online habits so that who we are online is in harmony with our offline selves. Ask yourself, what do I get out of this activity? How is this serving me? If you notice that gaming behaviors are impacting your daily activities, your work, or your relationships, Seek professional support. In addition to therapy, you might consider exploring a workshop for education and resources on online gaming through togetherwell.org. Self-awareness is important and paying attention to how gaming impacts our lives gives us the power to make healthier choices. Thanks for checking out TogetherWell's podcast, Mental Health Explored. If you liked what you heard and found the content helpful, be sure to share it. And please like, subscribe, and leave us a review. You can find us on all the major social media platforms. Please remember that if you're looking for a mental health workshop for your community, you can visit togetherwell.org to connect with a mental health professional. A big thank you to everyone on our amazing volunteer team at TogetherWell for making this podcast possible. Our executive producer is Dr. Michelle Haley, senior producer and audio engineer Brian Busas, contributing editor John Heenahan, voiceover specialists. Dr. Matt Harris, Mitchell Bergen, Shweta Patkar, and Dr. Eric Jensen. Design creations by Ruth Beltry and Malika Karieva. Administrative support, Sakji Punt and Shweta Patkar. This is Beth Rice, and on behalf of my co-host, Michelle Thompson, we're so happy you're here. Thanks for listening. Game over.